0: Our reading for today is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Listen now to the word of the Lord. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. being persecuted. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Envying one another. The word of the Lord.
1: The Lord be with you. Uh, Welcome, everyone. Uh, Just a couple of announcements before uh, I give this sermon. One is that um, we. Uh, ran out of the uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes, and so they will be here next Sunday. So I know some of you were asking uh, for them, so you can make your preparations, Um, but the boxes themselves will be here uh, next Sunday. And in two weeks, we'll be having our joint Thanksgiving service, and as uh, Pastor Dohey wrote in the Wednesday Word, uh, we're asking everyone uh, in the next few weeks to meditate on something that you are thankful for, And then to write out what that thing that you are thankful for on a piece of paper and to bring it with you uh, for the Thanksgiving service. And what you want to write is something along the lines like this. God, you gave me fill in the blank. That would have been enough. And so the idea is for us to thank God that had had God just given us just this one thing, that would have been enough. But of course, God has given us so much more. So for example, you might say, God, you gave me a friend when I, was, when I was alone. That would have been enough. Or, God, you allowed me to pass my test that I thought I was going to fail. That would have been enough. And so um, that's it. We just want, it doesn't have to be long, just one sentence uh, of thanksgiving. And we want to invite everyone to offer a word of thanksgiving. Um, but if you won't, uh, at least one member of your family, we invite you to, uh, to do that. But we'd love to have everyone uh, everyone do that. And um, so you can just write it out. So I know sometimes you get nervous being in front of people. So you can, you can just read it. It's just, and again, it's just, just one sentence. And I know you've got at least one thing that you want to be uh, thankful for. So uh, uh, please uh, prepare for that. All right? Uh, let's pray together. God, thank you uh, for this day and uh, for your word. Uh, For the world that you have created and the opportunity now to gather together to uh, listen to your word, for your word, and in the hearing, God, would you give us the strength to obey, to strengthen us, uh, to trust your word even more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So this is uh, just a continuation, the eighth sermon uh, in the series of sermons on Paul's letter to the churches uh, in Galatia. Uh, Throughout the letter, Paul has been repeating and repeatedly adamant that there is only one true gospel, the one that he received by revelation, the one that is acknowledged by all of the apostles, the one that the Galatians themselves have experienced through the Spirit, the one that is received by faith and not by works of the law, the one that has been proven true by scripture, by reason, and by experience. And this gospel was preached to Abraham long before Moses and the law and was fulfilled in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, through whom and in whom we also received the promises as heirs and as adopted children of God. And so in the first half of chapter 5, Paul addresses explicitly and specifically the particular work of the law that has been shaking the churches in Galatia, that is the rite of circumcision. He's already laid out the overall broad argument against the works of the law over the preceding uh, four chapters, and now he directly applies it to this issue. And he concludes, if you insist on circumcision... If you insist on adding that to the gospel, then it makes the work of Christ useless. For you, the work of Christ becomes of no advantage. You make yourself a debtor not only to this law, but to the entire law. It severs you from Christ, apart from whom you can do nothing. And It means that you have fallen from grace. The work of obedience to the law, the insistence on keeping any piece of the law nullifies grace and the work of Jesus. Works righteousness is a lie. It cannot, it will not save you. And Paul's been saying that over and over again. Uh, During World War II, as you know, uh, millions of people were sent to uh, concentration camps by the Nazis and when these folks, uh, these hungry, confused, uh, tired men, women, children were sent to uh, these camps, many of these camps, uh, as they, the first thing that they would see when they got to the camps would be uh, the, these iron gates, and there would be wording uh, on these iron gates, and the words were, uh, in many of them, uh, "Arbeit macht frei," meaning "work makes free." Work makes free. It promises that those who come through these gates in these camps that if you work hard somehow that if you work through the torturous suffering of meaningless work that you will be freed. But of course what they soon discovered uh, is that it only led to exhaustion and death. The freedom could not be earned through work no matter how hard uh, they worked. Uh, Work May have kept them alive, but it did not. It could not bring freedom. The freedom had to come from elsewhere. And this is the kind of, um, kind of lie that Paul is arguing against. You know, if you, if you want to keep, you know, these laws and you think that's going to help you and you think, you know, obeying these laws are going to bring you life, um, it, it, it's not. I mean, he, he's, he's just been saying this over in so many different ways. This is not what is going to bring you life. No one is justified. No one is made righteous before God by the keeping these laws. And he asks, you know, you're, you're running so well. And, and he does a little play on words here. You know, who cut you off from that? And, you know, those who are going to, like, cut themselves in circumcision, he wishes, you know, he would just, you know, cut yourselves up more and just emasculate yourself. Because that's what you're doing. This is not going to give you life. It is not going to give you life. Like all of the other works of the law, Paul said, it is not necessary. Now, that's not to say that uncircumcision, not getting circumcised, is somehow better or more spiritual. Paul's point is that in Christ, circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. One is not better than the other. These categories, these old categories of Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, it doesn't matter in Christ. What matters, he says, all that matters is faith working through love. That's all that matters. In Christ, only faith working through love matters. And what is that, you know, you just heard uh, Sam talk about this, the song we just sang from uh, 2.20. Where the word love first appears in, in this letter. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What does faith working through love look like? It's Jesus. Jesus demonstrates what faithfulness, what faith working through love looks like. And it's that faith that gives me a future hope of righteousness. And then Paul warns them just as a little bit of leaven uh, impacts an entire dough, so even the tiniest addition to the gospel will destroy the gospel. And instead, again, he says, that is not what you were called to. And he reminds them that you we're called to freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. It is to freedom and for freedom that Christ has come. It's for freedom. And then Paul says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so he comes back to love here once again. So, he knows, as we all know, that freedom can be very easily misapplied, misused, and it's a, it's, it's a very common theme um, in literature, in movies, in books, um, music. Um, I was reminded this week of uh, William Golding's novel, uh, The Lord of the Flies. You know, it's about a group of boys who get stranded on an island they have no doubts that they have complete freedom to create a community, and you know it starts off well, but you know what happens in the story right It, it goes into complete chaos, given a kind of absolute freedom, it devolves very quickly into utter chaos um, I don't know if you know Si uh, Liu, Lu, uh, a Chinese science fiction writer. Uh, One of his books just got recently translated uh, called Supernova Era. And he imagines sort of this story, The Lord of the Flies, um, on a planetary scale. What happens uh, when this happens on a planetary scale? Um, He's actually quite optimistic. Um, But, you know, when we have this kind of absolute freedom, the tendency, the temptation is to use it as an opportunity for the flesh. And so Paul wants to guard against that. Um, Max Lucado, in his book, The Group of Grace, tells this personal story, which I thought was very helpful. Um, he recalls when he was leaving for college that his father gave him uh, one of his credit cards. And his only instructions were, be careful how you use it. That was it. That's pretty risky, right? To give your son, who just turned you know, 18, 19, going off to college, and he tells him, Be careful how you use it. Here's what Lucado writes. As I was driving to college, it occurred to me that I was a free man. I could go anywhere I wanted to go. I had wheels and a tank of gas. I had my clothes. I had money in my pocket and a stereo in my trunk. And most of all, I had a credit card. By the way, for you young people, um, in the old days when you went off to college, the most important thing that you could take was a stereo <laughs> because we didn't have iPhones and you know, that was the only way you could have music and so you had this big clunky thing that you had to pack in your trunk. I could be in Mexico before nightfall. What was to keep me from going wild? Right? He, he could. He could do whatever he wanted, theoretically. And then he writes, grace fosters an eagerness for good. Grace doesn't spawn a desire for sin. If one has truly embraced God's gift, he will not mock it. When my father gave me his card, he didn't attach a list of regulations. There was no contract for me to sign or rules for me to read. He didn't tell me to place my hand on the Bible and pledge to reimburse him for any expenses. In fact, he didn't ask for any payment at all. As things turned out, I went a few weeks into the semester without using it. Why? Because he gave me more than a card. He gave me his trust. And where I might break his rules, I wasn't about to abuse his trust. And he writes, God's trust makes us eager to do what is right. Such is the genius of grace. You might recall your own sense of freedom when you left for college or when you left home for, I don't know, um, summer camp or something like that for the first time. I know that when I first left for college, um, I abused my freedom. Um, I didn't know what to do with all the freedom. (laughs) Um, Only two or three hours of classes a day. What do you do with the rest of your time? Only four classes per semester rather than the seven or eight in high school. They don't take attendance. I don't have to show up for class, especially the large lecture classes. I can stay up as long as I want. I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want. I can sleep in on Sundays and not go to church. I mean, I just went... I was about to go completely off the rails. Um, I was thankful that there were people in my life at that point who... Put some borders uh, on my freedoms. Paul knows this too. This is the danger of always preaching about freedom and of grace. That it's very easy to abuse. That it's just as the law binds us at one end, so freedom can just, you know, lead us astray at the other end. And so Paul says, don't use your freedom as a base of operations for the hostile powers of the flesh. Rather, through love, serve one another. He's been talking about being enslaved to the law, and now he uses the same word to describe how freedom in Christ should be used for voluntary and mutual submission to one another. This is what he writes in Romans 6 as well. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. It's what Jesus said in Mark 10. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Even back in the days of Moses when God led the people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, God told Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. It was a freedom from slavery, but it was also a freedom for service. It's not just about breaking the bonds of sin, it's so that you are now free to do something else. And Paul says it is the freedom. To serve one another. This is a very different way of thinking about freedom than what we are normally taught, certainly different from what the Greek philo- philosophers taught. The Stoics, for example, would say things like He is free who lives as he wills, who is subject neither to compulsion nor hindrance nor forces, whose choices are unhampered, right? If you are free, You have choices and you can do whatever you want. And usually we'll say something like, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, that's freedom. But Paul says that's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom is to do what is good and right. It's not whatever you want. It's the freedom to serve one another in love. It's the working out of your faith through love. And This mutuality is absolutely vital so that we do not abuse our power and our freedom. Because without this mutuality, without this mutual submission to serve one another, it's very easy for those of us who have power to act in a condescending or paternalistic way. You see sometimes this in mission context, right? I have all these resources for you. I know what is good for you. I can help you. I know what you need. You are lacking. I have, and so I'm going to give to you. When I do that, then my serving actually becomes another form of just simply lording over them. And so Paul says, no, no. There's a mutual serving in love of one another. And so when I do that, when I recognize that there is this mutuality, a mutual submission, then that keeps me from, you know, not lording it over them. It also keeps me from, you know, oh, they didn't thank me and getting upset. Like somehow I deserve to be thanked for my work. It keeps me from getting, just getting a fat head and overvaluing my contributions to someone else's well-being. There, there's a mutuality that he insists on, and I'm simply free to serve. It allows me to become what God wants me to become. So, how do we do this? How do we keep from, as Paul says, from devouring one another? How do we, on the one hand, escape the bonds of the law, and on the other, the uh, the opportunities of the flesh that freedom invites. And Paul's answer is very simple. He says, it's the spirit. It's the spirit. He says, if you walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, the flesh for Paul, uh, it doesn't just mean like uh, your physical bodies. Um, Paul will use this word flesh in a wide range of ways. Uh, Sometimes he's talking about cosmic powers. Sometimes he's talking about... um, the base nature, so sometimes you'll see it translated as the human nature or the lower nature or sinful nature, things like that. Um, Paul's not talking about here uh, flesh as a way of um, dividing up a human being, right? Like you got the flesh and then you got the soul, you got the spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about those powers, uh, the, the nature that is opposed to God, that is uh, in opposition the works of God's Spirit. He's thinking about two different realities uh, upon which to base your life. And so this desire, this, this, uh, this flesh, desires of the flesh, uh, in Paul's day, sometimes it was called an evil impulse because of a couple of verses from Genesis Before the flood in Genesis 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was very great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then after the flood, when Noah offered a sacrifice to God, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the desires of the heart. It's this nature, it's this, it's this bent of the human heart toward doing things that are against or opposed to the will of God. Um, I think today, um, it's, you know people talk about this in modern psychology uh, as something like the id or the will to power, right? And that if you can kind of just control it, you can use it to your benefit. It's this idea that you know, if we didn't have this kind of drive You you wouldn't do anything, right? The kind of uh, selfish uh, ambitions, uh, the selfishness. This is what drives people. And for the Jews, the way you control that was through the law. The, The law was what kept you in check from going overboard. But Paul knows that the law cannot save you. It might keep you in check for a while, but it cannot save you. And he says it's opposed to the spirit. And you can tell because those who are led by the desires of the flesh and those who are led by the Spirit of God, you can see a difference in outcomes. Listen to the list of the outcomes of the desires of the flesh. And this is the way Eugene Peterson has it in the message. He says, it is obvious, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never-satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of depersonalizing everything into a rival. Uncontrollable addictions. Ugly parodies of community. I could go on. The list is illustrative, not exhaustive. We We could add more things to this list. And Paul says, instead of all of this, these, these works of the flesh that are so evident, he says, instead of all that, if we walk in the Spirit, there is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I know we looked at the, the fruit of the Spirit in detail not too long ago, and so um, let me just make uh, this about it. And that is that the fruit of the spirit is the fruit of the spirit. It is the spirit's fruit, not ours. So even though this list, you know, if you look at any sort of list of virtues that the Greeks came up with, you know, they'd be pretty similar. There might be a little bit of difference, but it's pretty similar. So the list, you know, the qualities are not what differentiates the lists. It's that for the Greeks, these are individual virtues to be cultivated in your life for self-betterment, to attain a higher level of being. But for Paul and for the Spirit, it is not not the result of individual choices that you make. It is not something that you attain for yourself. It is a gift, and it is for the community. It is for the community. You know, one thing that really caught my attention uh, during the study of Galatians... Uh, these past few months, is Paul's incredible emphasis on the spirit. I didn't notice that before so much. Uh, I suspect it's because being Presbyterian, you know, I'm I'm sort of blind to to the spirit. We're not exactly known for, you know, our spirit-filledness, right? But more than a dozen times in this letter, Paul explicitly mentions the spirit, In today's reading, in addition to the fruit of the Spirit, he says that through the Spirit, we wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness, that we are to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and to keep in step with the Spirit. In other places, Paul talks about the Spirit a lot too. Like in Ephesians, says, you know, be filled with the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit who enables us, who empowers us, to do what is right, to exercise our freedom, to work out our faith in loving service. The Spirit alone has the power, the Spirit alone is strong enough to lead our community in faith working through love. I think this is, this is a great promise for us walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And you will not, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, not just in your own life, but in the life of your community. If you live by the Spirit, you will not devour one another. That's the promise. The hope lies not in us, not in our willpower, but in the Spirit who lives in us. It's not a matter of perfecting your personal disciplines. It's about walking in the spirit. It's been said, the spirit of God must not just have residency in your life, but the presidency in your life. The spirit must take residence in us, but must also be the Lord of our lives. To walk in the spirit continually, you know I, I know that um, for those of you who 've been um, walking with Jesus for some time now, sometimes it 's easy to get discouraged by your lack of progress or by the lack of progress that you don 't see you know in people around you, maybe in the, in the church or small groups it 's sometimes easy to get discouraged by the lack of, you know, spiritual growth in your own life and in the lives of others. I think we have all experienced the frustration of, of backsliding into old habits um, and then sort of this refrain of, you know, being sorry and repenting and promising to try harder, right? We often treat our spiritual life as if it were a diet. You make a new plan. You double down on your willpower. You get yourself someone that you can be held accountable to. Maybe you lower the bar of sanctification a little bit so you can reach it. Or someone tells you that this diet worked for me so you you try that for a while. Now, I I think a lot of those things come from a, a sincere place, a good place. But the fundamental problem is that this is a strategy That is dependent on you. You're going to try harder. You're going to work harder. And it doesn't work. It will not work. It will never work. Instead, Paul says, instead of trying harder, instead of adding more rules, he says, walk in the spirit. Live in the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And let the Spirit in you bear this fruit. Let the Spirit do the work and bear fruit. It's an inside job of the Spirit's renewal. Now, I'm not suggesting, so this, this is not just kind of like, ah, okay, so I'll just let go and let God, and let, let. That, that's not what Paul is saying here, right? But he's talking about, about abiding in the spirit and allowing God to do the work from within. To allow God to do the work within, to keep on abiding, right? And, and we can do that by continuing the spirit through, through worship together, through community, through prayer and so on. But those are, it, that, that's not just another discipline, another work. Those are just avenues to allow them to, the spirit to speak to us and to do the word. It's not about, work. It's about that relationship that those activities create in Christ to, them, to allow the Spirit to do the Spirit's work in us. And then, like fruit in its season, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit as long as you are abiding in Christ, as long as the Spirit lives in you. You know, I think I've told you this before, but uh, in, our, in our backyard, we have uh, two pear trees that I planted about 10 years ago, I think. And um, I know nothing about fruit. I know nothing about trees. And so I just, just dug a hole and put the trees in and thought they'll probably die before the first season is over. But lo and behold, they, they grew. The deer ate some of it, but they, they kept growing. And uh, every year, uh, after the first like three or four years, they started bearing fruit. Um, and we would always get like two or three pairs. That's it. Um, no more than like three or four maybe. Um, and then once in a while, uh, a few years ago, I think, we had like several dozen pairs. It was like, wow, we got, we got so many. And so we waited for them to get bigger so we could eat them, and then the deer just ate them all. So we got, we got no fruit. This year, the craziest thing happened. This year, again, I, I did nothing. I did nothing. And our, they, they were, there was so much fruit. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, there must have been a hundred pears on this tree, these two trees. And the deer didn't touch them at all. And I have no idea, like, they poop all over the yard, but they did not eat the pears. So I know they're there, but they didn't eat it. And so, you know, my wife and I, we got to enjoy the pears. I mean, we we got these pears. And I have no idea why it bore fruit this year. I, I have no idea. But if those trees that I did nothing for can bear fruit, then I know that if I am simply grounded in Christ, if the Spirit lives in me, in us, that fruit will come. Because that's what trees do. That's the promise. If you abide in me, Jesus said, you will bear much fruit. You know, I know that sometimes people talk about being filled with the Spirit or walking in the Spirit as a sort of mystical kind of thing, right? Um, You sometimes hear people say things like, I felt the Spirit or um, I sensed the movement of the Spirit or the Spirit led me to make this decision or something like that. Um, You know, when someone shares a testimony about what God has done in their life and you listen to that and you feel moved, right, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, and you say, you know, wow, you know, amen, you know, spirit was here today, right, or you come out of a a worship service where you really felt like you heard God's word or the praise time was really, you know, awesome, something like that, and you go, wow, you know, the spirit was really present today. Um, That's fine. I don't have anything against people thinking or talking that way. But, you know, there's a much more mundane way of thinking about the presence of the spirit in our community, according to Paul. You know, maybe you want something more mystical. But Paul says, you know the spirit is present because of fruit. And the fruit of the spirit is love. So where there is love, where love is practiced, that's the presence of the spirit of God. That's it. We don't usually talk this way, right? We'll use different language like, you know, uh, I was encouraged or I was blessed or, you know, she's very faithful or he's very joyful. But then we don't follow that up with, wow, there's the Spirit of God. I sense the presence of the Spirit because this person was gentle with me today when he could have been harsh. That's the Spirit of God. I kept my patience, you know, I didn't scream at my kids today. That's the presence of the Spirit of God. I mean, maybe your kids will recognize that, right? That's the presence of the Spirit of God when you see this fruit in community. Let me close with this. You know, I I hope it's clear that freedom is not a freedom uh, from responsibility, but that it is, in fact, a freedom that is just the opposite. In Christ in the spirit, by faith, in freedom, it allows us to enter into voluntary obligations with one another. We voluntarily, mutually obligate ourselves to serve one another in love. That's what all this is about. In mutual submission, we have the freedom in Christ to serve one another. You know, when I was a young preacher... Um, younger than I am now, Um, I really thought, I really thought that if I studied enough, that if I read enough, that if I could teach well enough, that because the gospel is so beautiful, that I could persuade everyone to see the truth of it. I saw the truth of the gospel and I thought if, if as long as I can just study enough and, and preach well enough people will be converted and will come to see the light because it, it's so obvious and it's so beautiful. Um, and of course that's not true. I discovered very quickly that if I argue well enough I'm just more obnoxious. <laughs> That's not how people come to faith. I know now that you have to be in community for some time to make mistakes, to work together, to laugh, and to suffer together. That when you voluntarily obligate yourself to each other in mutual submission... That's when you see faith working through love. And that's when the gospel makes or starts to make sense for most people. I know that now. Jesus said where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. You gotta have at least two because if there's there's only one, you cannot love one another. You cannot work out your faith by yourself. I know that all of you want to receive love. And you often testify about the love that you received and what a blessing that has been and that you are thankful for those moments of receiving love. That's good. But maybe this week, I want to suggest to you that you also think about and be thankful for the love that you can give. Not just the love that you receive, but the love that you can give. Now, I know you don't want to be boastful about that, But be thankful that you have the opportunities to love others. That God has placed people in your life for whom you have the resources, the words, to offer them love. Maybe they won't even receive it well. But you have those opportunities. And I think those are the kinds of legacies and memories that you want to have. right? That not only did you receive love, but to, to be thankful that you had opportunities to give away the love that Christ has given to you. We need both. To be thankful for the love that we receive, but also thankful for the opportunities to work out my own faith in working out my faith through love. That's what the freedom is for in Christ. To love one another. To keep in step with the Spirit and work out your faith through love. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful that you not only claimed us as your children, but you also did not leave us alone. But as Jesus promised, you gave to us the Spirit who now lives in us in this place together as we gather. And so God, help us to experience, to participate in working out our faith through love so that we may bear much fruit so that the presence of your spirit would be evident to all help us god to trust you to rest in your spirit so that we may not so that we may not fulfill the desires of the flesh but instead we would bear the fruit of the spirit trusting in your power we ask these things in jesus' name amen Now I invite you once again to the Lord.